Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Did you know Ted Cruz, that his, uh, I think his nine-year-old and 11-year-old are going to be tried for treason in the next couple of years? Did you hear about that? No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Apparently, they're supposed to be in jail, according to some reports and Kennedy assassination? Oh, no. 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 Um, God, I forgot what the, the context of it was. I don't know. It's I, um, <laughs> maybe funny. important to include. <laughs> yeah. Context is unimportant on this podcast. <laughs> surprised you didn't, didn't see that clip but anyways <laughs> i really wish i would have remembered what the context of it was but that's not important um hi guys it's uh barstool politics i'm your host nick mcguire joined as always by uh dr bill muck from north central college and dr phil barker from Keene state college hi guys hey nick hi hi and we have one of our original guests on uh, jake you were yeah. maybe maybe the second guest we've ever had on uh jake oh, wow. hutt uh, of uh, Keen Sentinel and uh, soon to be a business insider, correct? Yes, Keen Sentinel for another like four hours, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then business insider. Today, today is my last day, so <laughs> very cool. Um, yeah, uh, Jake, thanks for coming back on. We we appreciate yeah. it. Um, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys like the podcast, questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, want to see what we're up to, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that you, uh, we try. Not that you try. I don't really care what you try. Um, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just uh, look for Barstool Politics on there. And the podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Review us, share us, like us through there. Uh, and then our merch line, which you can find on teespring.com. I am currently wearing my uh, fish and uh, human coexist shirt, which I am super proud of. Looks great. Yes. It's very it's like the nicest feeling T-shirt. I just keep feeling my own T-shirt. It's, it's good quality. Creepy, very good it feels quality. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so check that out. We have that. Uh, some hoodies, mugs, different things. We'll we'll keep adding stuff as time goes on. Um, uh, so, Jake. Uh, yeah, obviously, again, thank you for being here. We want to take advantage of, uh, of your expertise. Um, obviously, going to talk about impeachment, uh, the Democratic primary. Um, all the usual fun stuff that we've been talking about ad nauseum for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. That's right. Uh, Bill, can you give us kind of a, a rundown of uh, what's been going on in the past? Week? Sure. So on Tuesday, Donald Trump's legal team wrapped up its formal defense of the president. Yet the, fen- the defense was clearly overshadowed by the bombshell news that in his forthcoming book, John Bolton, Trump's former national security advisor, writes that Trump ordered him to maintain a hold on U.S. military aid to Ukraine until Ukraine agreed to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden. Nick, that's what we call a quick quid pro quo. Supposedly. Yeah. So the Senate will debate, uh, will devote Wednesday and Thursday to questions, but then Mitch McConnell will have to tackle the very difficult question of whether to allow witnesses, specifically John Bolton. The prospect of Bolton testifying is an absolutely wild one. The White House and its surrogates have spent the last couple of days attacking Bolton, but unlike others who have testified, Bolton's credentials as a conservative hawk are rock solid. Bolton's alleged allegations directly undermine the legal argument put forward by the Trump defense. 
that the president did nothing wrong and there was no connection between military aid and politically motivated investigations. So much to kick around here. Jake, why don't you start us off and give us your journalistic impression of the historic developments we've witnessed over the last week? Yeah, this is one of those. uh, Thanks again for having me. Uh, This is one of those biases journalists have that is being confirmed. And that's a bias towards just a really good conflict story. Mm -hmm. And particularly, there's kind of some Watergate nostalgia coming up all of a sudden where you have the drip, drip, drip. And, you know, that makes for good cable news. That makes for, you know, good sort of subscription, you know, plug fodder. And I think the fact that the longer they keep Bolton on the sidelines and now with this move today where it's like, well, you can't publish this book because like everything in it's a national security, you know, (laughs) top level secret, which supposedly also so are all those call logs in that server that we haven't kind of stopped talking about. So the more they do that, I think the more, you know, leaks you're going to see coming out of Bolton world. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, you got to wonder, even though Mitch McConnell wants to keep Bolton just like locked up and get this thing over with there, it's hard to estimate, I think, for these Republicans, like how bad are they going to look the more and more Bolton stuff comes out? And that's just in the short term. That's not even the long term legacy stuff that they may or may not consider. So, you know, Bolton has all the cards. And because he has the book, because he has the network of people who've seen this stuff. It could just drag on, and that's the opposite of what McConnell wants to do. So I'm, I'm just not sure where they draw the line of, like, you know, how much of an extended leak fest is too much. And is is that, you know, at a certain point, is it better just to get him on the stand, get the Fox News apparatus churning, and move on, you know? That's my sense of it, is that, you know, you, you if you do this short term, if you just say, all right, we'll bring him on, we'll have him testify, go through a couple days that are going to be painful – Three days from now, there's going to be something new with Trump and everybody will have forgotten. I, I'm surprised yeah. that they're not more aggressive to say, let's just take the heat right away and move on. Yeah. What, what do you think? Uh, what do you think Bolton's like? What's Bolton's game here? Because it, it, as more of this comes out, it just seems like he wants to testify. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's talked about, you know, he said I'd be willing to testify. He's leaking this information. He, he, more leaks came today about how. He had reached out to uh, what's his name, the Republican, sorry, the Democratic House member, um, basically a while back to say something is fishy going on here. Um, it, it seems like he's you know dangling all of this out there, making it difficult not to call him. But then there's this flip side, which he's he's not talking publicly. He wasn't right. testifying to the House. He's not like well, I don't. It's hard for me to figure out exactly what it is, is does the propriety of how he gets called matter to him? Because at the same time, if you're writing a book to sell books, yeah. like, I don't, I, I, mm. I just can't quite figure it out. Point. I do, I do think you want to save the goods for the book so people buy it. And that's, that, that's been kind of evident from the beginning. The other thing I've, I've uh, you know, been hearing from White House reporters and some people have kind of gone into this at length is that Bolton's always been a copious note taker. Uh, you know, some of the really dialed in White House reporters, I think Maggie Haberman, had a bit of a thread this week on how like Trump just loathed that he would take <laughs> Bolton. That is would take this big yellow notepad in all these meetings. And I forgot. It was like, the, what's the Sopranos line? I'm like, are you taking notes during a criminal conspiracy? <laughs> but, um, but you know, this is not new for him though. Like he wrote um, a book, I believe about the build up to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, trying to defend his case. And he, you know, is like almost like Comey on steroids where he takes extemporaneous notes about everyday's happenings. He has kind of um, a sort of eye for posterity where he will, at the end of the day, chronicle 
what happened so he can be precise about dates and developments in subsequent retellings. And my view is that I think Bolton knew what he was getting into with this White House. He thought, hey, like, I'm getting older. This is the last Republican administration we may have, you know, while I have some influence. Basically views it from a purely consequential point of view. I'll take my crack here. And by the way, like, you know, if whatever I may not get represented fairly in the short term, I got the book in the long term and I got my notes. And that's what's happening now. It's a weird thing because there are some that are portraying him as a hero, right? That Bolton is coming in to save the day. But no, he is he's most a fucking certain, monster. Right. I mean, no. he's, he's either – I don't think it's purely the book. I think that's part of it. But there's nothing stopping him. Or I guess that's the question. Is there anything stopping him from doing a press conference? You know, he could have done this months ago to say, you know, the, the, the impeachment hearing has been going on a long time. He could have said, I have something to offer. And he hasn't. Uh, I mean, my understanding, I think there's – they haven't really given specifics on the NSC hasn't given specifics on what information is deemed top secret or, or classified uh, up to the level of, of top secret. They're still holding the manuscript and there's still some uh, wavering on the exact date or or if they'll let it get published based on that information. I imagine if he calls a press conference, that's going to be slightly problematic. But the question of the quid pro quo, that's not national security, right? I mean, that is something that the president's talked about. Everybody's talked about. I mean, in, in that very specific yeah. instance, yes. If he's taking contemporary or, uh, contemporaneous notes about everything that yeah, uh, surrounds right. that information, I feel like that could get tied to a lot of other things that they would want to ask questions about. I wouldn't be surprised if the White House is like, all of it, it's all classified, not a word right. comes no. out. You know, this is, nobody's <laughs> That's what they were saying today, yeah. I mean, the, the Lev Parnas approach is, is like the opposite end of the spectrum where it's like, hey, like, I got me, my lawyer, who wants to talk, you know? And there are limits to that, too, because people look at Lev Farnas and they're like, what is this guy doing? Like, you know, where's Igor, by the way, is my question. Like, where's the other guy? Like, is, is, he, is, like, is he scheming for some book deal? But we got, know, we got the name I, of our show, Where's Igor? <laughs> where's Igor? But anyway, I mean, there's, 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 the, the, the short takeaway, I, like, for people who, like, come to me and are like, I haven't been paying attention, what should I, like, know about impeachment? And I'm kind of like, you know, look, the the Bolton thing also is sort of a litmus test for, you know, your Mitt Romney's and your Lisa Murkowski's or maybe Cory Gardner to say, I at least put up for fairness here. But McConnell wants this to just be over with so badly that it's becoming almost like an unnecessary sticking point, I think. And, you know, it's just going to be a game of chicken for who budges first. Who, I, so I, I can I haven't thought a whole lot about this, but I, I'm going back to what you you both were saying earlier about just do it right, just get call uh, call Bolton, have him come. I, part of me thinks you said this last week or the week before, Bill, that nothing's going to change, right? If Bolton comes on there and says yes, Trump did this, he he withheld uh, aid to pressure Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. We all know that, right? So that, that's not going to change any Democrats' minds. And it's not going, if a Republican has basically been arguing that either that's not illegal or it should have happened because, you know, Biden is corrupt or whatever. I, I don't know. Certainly, it's not going to change enough minds to lead to a conviction, right? So it, it maybe it, even if it converts three or four Republicans, you're still at that point, what, 15 votes away from a conviction. Yeah, so it's whether you have a fair trial, I think, is the sticking point now. So you know? it seems like the, that's the smart thing to do. But then I, I think about the other side, which is the more that this drags on, right, the more that this you, you don't know, right? I think about you know, the idea of a, a lawyer, a prosecutor, right? You're never supposed to ask a question you don't already know the answer to. You bring Bolton up there. This is all stuff that you don't know. Um, 
what he's going to say. So who knows what Bob and, and Bolton is a smart and and kind of Machiavellian type guy. So yeah. you know who knows what you know little uh, thing he's tidbit he's held on to. Um, I, I don't I don't know. I mean that's a it's a big risk. But I, I, it, it's hard for me to find the downside at this point. I, to for the Republicans to be able to move forward, negotiate, you know, three, two witnesses, whatever, give some credibility to this. It, it makes their argument even stronger when they when they acquit him to say, look, we we actually yeah. we, we didn't just think about it. We heard from the important witnesses, and we still weren't convinced. The issue of the uncertainty. I, I don't know. Is it, Right. Am I, is there, well, is there something that I'm not thinking of that could really blow it up? Yeah, potentially. I mean, if you go back to Jake's point about, you know, Watergate, if, if you get Bolton on the stand, uh, there's already been some rumors from the book that he, that Trump did personal favors for Turkey and China. Yeah, right. The Democrats are going to be asking, they're going on a fishing expedition and Bolton <laughs> no, is, they specifically said they're only going to talk <laughs> right. about Ukraine. They can't, we won't ask about anything else. Right. And Bolton is a grumpy guy who, you know, can be pissed about things and he's got to be angry with the Trump administration. I mean, Trump Trump has been trashing him on Twitter. That's what this is about, his feelings. Guys. Right. So, I mean, there's if there's other things, he, he could easily release those. And then you wonder whether that's big enough. If it just sticks to the Ukraine stuff, it still hurts their defense. So the Trump team spent the last three days saying no quid pro quo. You know, this, there's nothing here. The president did anything wrong. But if Bolton says he did and he's credible. Then they've got to switch to this defense where, well, he did it, but it's not impeachable, right? It becomes the Clinton defense where, well, yeah, he did perjure himself, but it wasn't so terrible that we should remove him for office. And that, that's a political hit, yeah. but it's not it's not it's not catastrophic. Realistically, you see them kind of forming this this side this secondary argument that realistically, this is a procedural issue more than anything. The House didn't do its job. Bolton could have testified to the House committee. Uh, and decided no, he he didn't want to. Yeah. They didn't follow up on the subpoenas. They didn't want to go through the courts. This is procedural. This is not the Senate's job. We're here to hold a quote unquote trial, not necessarily a fair trial. It's a trial. It's a political trial. Oh, it's yeah. not a trial in the in the purest sense of the word. So, I, you know, why why is it incumbent upon them to start calling new witnesses that were not part of the original investigation in the first place. And that I would, seems ridiculous. I wouldn't be surprised. That's the talking. You know, Mitch believe. doesn't have the votes now, but I wouldn't be surprised if Republicans don't don't move to witnesses. No, I, mean, I that, would agree. Yeah. So, so let, let's talk about that. So it came out last night that McConnell has said that he doesn't have the votes, right? Or he doesn't have the votes to prevent witnesses from being called. So uh, Romney um, is probably going to vote to ha call witnesses. Uh, the other was Susan Collins is... I, I I don't ever like <laughs> trust anything uh, with Ladies, that down but, the road on the condition <laughs> that. <laughs> but supposedly she's on board with calling at least Bolton. Uh, Murkowski's the other one that's a possibility. There's a handful of other possibilities. Uh, so what, what do you think? What happens on Friday? Because all the other thing is there's the possibility that we end up with a tie, right? So if it's a 50, 50 tie, then there's all sorts of other questions about what happens then, but you have a prediction about how, how this is going to play out on Friday. I think Cory Gardner is going to want to save his hide at some point. I just think he's, he's got to have some smart people around him saying like, look, dude, you know, John Hickenlooper is a relatively popular challenger to you, but you came in here as like a common sense, folksy, unifying candidate. Like, what are you doing handcuffing yourself to this in a state that's just demographically nowhere near the other, you know, rural Trump states where you're like, you actually could jeopardize your career. I also think that like, 
you know, I wouldn't rule out necessarily um, your like really long term Republicans like a Ben Sass or a Tom Cotton who could never vote to like convict or remove Trump. But maybe they just try to like put that chip on the table. Well, like, well, I wanted witnesses in a fair trial at least. So I called Bolton, but I had his back. Otherwise, you know, I think you'll see some sort of, you know, things about that. But there are a lot of senators. You just follow the Capitol Hill reporters. It's telling kind of increasingly a couple make themselves available. I think Tim Scott today, like, was holding a little gaggle, and Chuck Schumer was kind of like lurking around behind him, like, what's he going to say? <laughs> and then, you know, Tim Scott was kept hedging on witnesses, and Chuck Schumer just started smiling, because he knows that, like, they're putting the screws to some of these guys. Mm-hmm. They're probably doing some polling, right? I mean, they're checking where their publics are before they move. I mean, that's oh, yeah. part of the reason for delaying until Friday is we can see, they can see how big of a story this gets. If the Bolton thing is continuing to be a major issue on Friday, then they say, yeah, we, we've got to move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's your what's your guess, Bill? What How do you think it plays out oh, on Friday? I, my thing, I'm, if I had to put money on, I would say uh, Mitch McConnell is going to try to shut it down, no witnesses, which I think is the dumb move, right? I think they'd be better off getting him out there. I think, I think to the point you guys both raised, uncertainty is a danger to him and he wants to move on. Um, yeah, that would be my guess. But I don't know. What do you think? I, so I'm going to make a bold and, and probably wrong prediction. <laughs> <laughs> but my bold prediction is going to be that it's not going to be as close as people think. Because I, I think I, there, part of me just thinks they're going to get the four votes, right? They're going to they're, they're gonna find somebody else who who pushes this over. And once that happens and witnesses are going to be called, then the pressure to, to mm-hmm. run the party line is off, right? And so people who, uh, you know, at that point can say, uh, yeah, I'm, let's do the witnesses and and I'm still going to be a no when it comes time to convict. But I think there's, you know, people who if, you know, push comes to shove, if it, if it, if McConnell does have the votes, people who will be in line. But once they get to, you know, McConnell doesn't have the votes, you're free to sort of do the whatever is politically savvy for you. And I think there'll be a handful of other people who who flip on that. So that I don't know. Uh, that's my bold. I, I'm not yeah. saying it's going to be 80 to 20, right? But I think it's not. It may not be a 51 49. I could see it being 54 or 46. Yeah, or, or close, closer like to 10 defections than right. five. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what happens? So if McConnell doesn't get the votes and they're going to move toward witnesses, then there has to be deliberation over what witnesses right. look like, what that process is, who asks questions. I mean, that's pretty darn fascinating as well, right? I mean, is it is it just Bolton or is it Mulvaney? Do we get a Biden coming in, which is, again, a oh, total God. circus? You bring Hunter Biden in. It's just... Ooh, you're going to have to pull him out of the crack house. Yeah, he, well, he's busy these days. So, I, I mean, I, all of that's got to be negotiated. So... <laughs> but also they, they have to, i think they have to vote to depose them in private too mm-hmm. it's like three different votes to get them in front of the mm-hmm. camera and that's like that's like the kind of mind-boggling thing and mcconnell obviously knows all that and knows that that time starts kind of compounding on trump right. and you know it's weird the, the some of the anonymous quotes you read in these stories you have republicans say us continuing this impeachment process is dangerous because trump will lash out mm-hmm. and then you have the democrats saying Trump's dangerous because of what he's doing like <laughs> right. every day. Yeah, yes. But they both think that like the, his state of mind is actively like a problem given all this stuff. And I think you just give him a rally every day and like get him <laughs> away from it. It would be better. I'm serious. Like the New Hampshire rally, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to be there. I think I, I filed for my credentials. That? It's the night, night, of, the night before the primary. Uh, also, Bernie has a Strokes concert happening in Durham that night, so it's a trade-off for somebody. Um, but, you know, he's going to blow off some steam, and, like, it's it's just one of those things. We've seen this with the Mueller report where 
often his counter reactions to whatever frustrations end up causing him more trouble than the thing he was in the first place. Well, he's tweeting way more, right? He's going I mean, after Fox News. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, going through like 40 a day. Yes. Uh, and going, like you said, that going after Fox News, that is that shocked that's me. That's not a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he did that during the 2016 campaign, though. Also like, true. Remember he skipped mm-hmm. one of the debates? He skipped one of the debates because he like didn't want Megyn Kelly to ask him questions. And Roger Ailes was like, oh, I don't know. And they're like, no, let's just do it. He'll, he'll, he'll be back. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, so Jake, you, when you started, you were talking about, yeah, <laughs> that um, the media is kind of loving this impeachment process. And, and there's part of me that thinks that the media is loving this uh, more than maybe the public as a whole. Like when I talk to people, oh, totally. it doesn't feel totally, like totally, totally. They're, they're following it. But, you know, you turn on the radio, you turn on the television, the major networks are covering it. I, I haven't seen any returns, but it does feel like this is just uh, uh, the media is just so excited about all of this. Yeah, and, and you talk to the campaign people, and they're like, oh, no, because, you know, it's funny, uh, Joni Ernst from Iowa had, like, a, she thought she had a zinger the other day where she was like, you know, I hope the people of Iowa are tuning into impeachment and they'll think twice about Joe Biden. It's like, no, 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 this helps Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders more than anybody. It frustrates Bernie because he can't be on the trail as much, but it simply just reinforces stasis in the race because – you have this compelling primary that people are tuning out of, you know, uh, some of the embeds even like I know like ABC, they've actually been shuffling a lot of their reporters back and forth mm. from Capitol Hill to uh, the campaign trail. So they're doing like impeachment campaign double duty, mm. burning both ends of the candle this early. So it's, it's kind of crazy. But I do think like the news fatigue factor is just. It's been prevalent everywhere since Trump won, and I think that we saw this with the Russia investigation, that eventually, you know, the people who are what you would call like political hobbyists are going to pay attention no matter what. They're going to have their takes. They enjoy it. I think a lot of people are – they simply are like, where is Ukraine? What is it? Why is that important? (laughs) The phone call? What? Like Rudy and the guys that Fallon talked about the other night, and that's it. That's all all they're picking up, and I think that ultimately like – they're, they just think there's this image of it being a foregone conclusion in the Senate, and they're just going to pay attention to the election later. And sure. that's as far mm-hmm. as it goes. It, it, it's frustrating for me, but that's that's what it is. Mm. Yeah, I, as I've talked to people, I've talked to a number of people, students. Uh, you know, Kelly, my wife, even was saying earlier today that, you know, she pays attention probably more than the average person, but she's kind of, you know, ready for this to yeah. be over. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where I feel like the actual hearings and what's happening are almost kind of a placeholder in the in the idea of, you know, if you can have the if you can call witnesses with this impeachment hearing, it's not it's partly what they're going to say, but it's partly about dragging this out for more Bolton stories to break. Yeah. It's not actually what's happening in the the room. It's the the news cycle that can continue to, to circulate. Right. Um, but yeah. Well, I mean, when you turn it on, I mean, so like the last couple of days, listening to the legal arguments, even the questions today, it's it's not all you watch 10 minutes of it and you're ready to move on. Well, <clears throat> I was uh, before we, we started recording, there was a story that came out on CNN, an opinion piece about um, the, the the Q&A session today in, in the Senate um, and how it's just like I've never seen a story from CNN be so nihilistic and just kind of defeated about the entire process, not necessarily coming from the Democrats or the Republicans, just the fact that this is political theater and like, we're not getting to the substance of anything anymore. And we have no idea where we're paying attention to this because nothing substantive was said today. 
and no new information came out of it. Yeah. And it's just, I, I think that's when a major news outlet says that, and it's it's a prevalent story, you can bet that a, a significant portion of the American populace is thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. So I like I, I don't know how much longer this can last without people just turtling and waiting for this to be done mm-hmm. and, you know, voting for whoever they're going to vote for or they were going to vote for in the first place. So so maybe it's been a couple minutes. Did you guys Dershowitz has been making all sorts of news with his legal arguments? <clears throat> so so today, I mean, this is this is really extraordinary. Today, he argued that any action to aid the reelection taken by a president could be considered in the nation's interest and therefore not impeachable. I mean, so Dershowitz is saying that anything a president does to pursue his re-election strategy, it can be is in the interest of the country mm-hmm. and therefore not impeachable. I say that at work right. when I do things wrong. Right. Yeah. That's that's <laughs> extraordinary, right? <laughs> right. The, the logical implication of that is like if somebody I saw somebody pointing out that you know if if Donald Trump thinks that winning the the election is in you know Trump re getting reelected is in the nation's interest then nuking California yeah. right to increase the chances of him winning would not be impeachable or a violation of of an abuse of power right I mean, Dershowitz also, it's like uh, I thought it was kind of telling that after he got done the other day Cipollone came up and he's like this reminds me of the moot court exam from law school. It's like, yeah, that's not a good like way to segue from that, dude. Like, you know, it's like I, I had to write a moot court about Pentecostal snakes killing the parents of these kids because they're preachers and which which civil liberties came in to get custody. Like, and that's what Dershowitz is doing. He just kind of throws in all the hypotheticals. And ultimately, it's like the culmination of Trump's I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue argument, but from a legal perspective. The one thing I will say, though, about Dershowitz doing the whole thing and like obviously he's got some safe some face to save with his Epstein connections and everything else going on um but he's at least making like quasi legal mm-hmm. arguments and that is i guess helpful compared to like look at the economy that's not what we're here for <laughs> right, fellas right. you know so i don't know but i do think like it's this could, depending on how this tips, like when we're eight years from now in the Don Jr. administration <laughs> and they're lining up Eric or Ivanka and we're in this like new era of dynastic politics, like th- th- this is a good place to, you know, look back to. <laughs> <Right. laughs> uh, is it the beginning or the end of it all, depending right. on how you look yeah. at it? It's a bright future. It did make some for some weird <laughs> political theater to see, you know, Dershowitz back there talking about impeachment and then to see Ken Starr and... and Ken Starr, and again, making, you know, again, making, at least making legal arguments. His whole argument is that there was no underlying crime. So therefore you can't impeachment. And Thomas said that's totally bogus, but, but yeah, I mean, it was just weird. I'm I'm used to Ken Starr 20 years ago. He he doesn't look great. Um, (laughs) There was this sort of awkward smile to it. It just, I don't know. It just, maybe it was too much of the, the Clinton dynamic, but it was weird to see him out there. The guy who led the impeachment charge 20 years ago. Now arguing that it's not time to impeach. It's just it's like hypocrisy. Or we're in the era of impeachment. And there's right. too many. There's too many impeachments. Like, well, you did the last one. <laughs> right. did, Ken, did Ken Starr forget who Ken yeah. Starr is? You, you were the guy. That's a dangerous precedent. <laughs> right, right. I mean, so this idea that yeah, we shouldn't impeach. I don't know. It's it's really added. It is it is stunning. Mm-hmm. Um, should we? Yeah. Well, one more thing before we we go to beer, uh, Jake. Just a quick impression. So the the whole. Uh, NPR interview with oh, Mike God. Pompeo. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you know, so so if our listeners don't know, Mary Louise Kelly, uh, NPR interview uh, was interviewing Mike Pompeo about Iran, and then asked some questions about Ukraine, and and Pompeo was rather testy about that. 
after the interview, uh, he calls her back to the private office and apparently yells at her for the same time amount of time as the interview. So it led to kind of a back and forth. I'm curious, just as, as a journalist, what was your impression of that exchange and what, what should we think of it? Oh, I mean, it happens all the time. Like, you, you know, you, you get yelled at by people in this line of work if you're doing your job really? right. That's fine. <laughs> I did think the two things, the, the important thing is that the State Department then banned NPR from the plane the next day. And that's like where you get in like the totalitarian realm of like not good practices. <laughs> but in the audience of one worked because, because you know, Trump, I, not, it wasn't at the rally. I think it was during the Israeli-Palestinian peace yeah, press conference exactly. or something? Yeah. He was like, you know, I thought you did a good job on her. <laughs> I'm like, he likes that stuff. He he likes the, you know, going after reporters. I mean, remember, um, I wrote on a book about Trump when I was a junior in college for uh, Mark Singer at The New Yorker. And he, he wrote a profile on him. There was kind of a recap of it. But before he wrote that in the 90s, um, the same editor, uh, Tina Brown, had assigned a Vanity Fair story on Trump. What he did after that story was pour a bottle of wine down the reporter's dress at a, at a gala. <laughs> wow. So this is a streak. He's always had huh. this. This is not like a new thing because of Republicanism or whatever. But, you know, just the fact that like the, the supporter, I've been to a Trump rally, covered it. They really do think that the press are all conspiring to run the country, even though we can't agree on like M dashes and basic style <laughs> points like can include on that. So th this is going to get worse. You know, I think the schadenfreude thing, people like seeing the media get poked at. And the other just weird thing was like, why is you finding Ukraine on a map, the high bar? <laughs> right. You know, it's like really weird. It's like, you're the secretary of state, dude. You graduated first in your class at West Point and your defense is like, can you find Ukraine on a map? It's very important. It's like, so, and who has maps? Yeah. With, well, who has maps without names right. on them, right? <laughs> Wait, well, you made a print one. Yes. He, they found it. That's yes. the other reason. They made, they had to be, someone had to go find one. Somebody pointed out that if, if they're carrying around blank, unlabeled maps, that uh, they've probably done this before. It's probably not the first time they've requested someone you know, to, to you know, prove you know what you're talking about. I was joking around with my students that we were talking about this anecdote, and I was saying that I should do I should have blank maps in my office, and that when students come in, I'll pick a country, and if they can't point it out, there's no no conversation. We move funny. on. That would not go well. No, 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 no. Yeah. I'm tenured, Nick. It's different. <laughs> Well, should we talk beer? Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right. Phil, what are you guys enjoying? So uh, we're, well, I, I, Jake hasn't quite started his yet, but uh, I have already finished. My, <laughs> um, uh, so a couple of weeks ago, I had a couple of weeks ago, I had a beer from uh, Hill Farmstead Brewery and uh, I, it was their Citra beer. And it was, um, it was the one that I talked about. It had like a perfect score on Beer Advocate that I just thought was phenomenal. This is from that same brewery. This is their Society and Solitude number no. six. Uh, it's another Imperial oh IPA. My God. It's really good. <laughs> Jake started. What? Someone, so, someone put this in an ad. <laughs> uh, I, I actually like the other one better than this one, but this is also a really fantastic beer. This one's a little kind of funkier um it's got a i don't i don't know i it's it's the other one i had a hard time describing almost it's like it was, it's like the capri sun of craft beer <laughs> like it's really great it's it's hoppy it's a little funkier than the other one i had but it's uh, there's like a lightness to it yeah. that, that doesn't exist in other ipas that's really fantastic mm -hmm. Ooh, that sounds good that sounds good would you have another <laughs> I would absolutely have another, yes, for sure. Where on your tongue does it hit you exactly? 
What what quadrant? This one it's more like front and middle, not <laughs> yeah, a whole lot in the middle. back. It's weird, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna make that but it's just one smooth, go. consistent. Oh, this is incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is really good. Phil's getting good at getting good beer. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, what are we enjoying? Uh, so we had a a citra dank juice from Odd Side Ales, which they are out of Grand Haven, Michigan. Um, this one's really good. It was. Yeah. Like it, when, whenever you see dank on something and you've talked about it before, this is kind of a little sketchy. Yeah. Um, this is really good. I would almost call it the, um, the sunny D of, of, you know, <laughs> <Sunny Hills. D. laughs> I'll, I'll one up you. I swear to God. But it, is, um, it had that, <laughs> that citra hoppiness, uh, a little cloudiness. Uh, it was, it was solid. But it had yeah. like a good sweetness yes. to it that balanced yep. it out really well. Again, like the, the, the dank thing kind of can be overpowering in the raw beer this is really well balanced i feel like yeah um so yeah I, I i thought it was really good one thing before we do we also had and we we rarely have liquor on this podcast i we had a little bit of and it's almost impossible to find buffalo trace makes their version of a, a bailey's thing which is it's called their bourbon mm. cream you mix that with a little bit of root beer it might be the best thing i've ever had ever ever it was, it's wow. amazing. Yeah. So look for that because, like, apparently we had the last bottle in the state. So it's, I don't know. It's really yeah, it fun. is. Uh, you know, in root beer, I never would have thought combining it, but wow. That's it was, really that good. was, like you said, it was buttery. It was oh, smooth. So little smooth. sweetness. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. That hit all the parts of my tongue. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. We're not going to do speed rounds today because we have Jake here again. Like, this is, this is a great opportunity for us. We're going to talk about the Democratic primary. Um, yeah, Bill, again, give Let's us a quick it. breakdown. So with the Iowa caucus is less than one week away and the New Hampshire primary following soon after, the Democratic primary is finally starting to come into focus. Nationally, former Vice President Joe Biden remains the front runner, but polls show that his lead is threatened by Bernie Sanders, who has remained in second uh, place in national polling averages since November. And with this re- recent surge in the polls, there are many now arguing Sanders has a legitimate shot at winning the Democratic primary. This has made some within the Democratic establishment a tad nervous. So when it comes to the polls, while Sanders has a good deal of momentum, the race in both Iowa and New Hampshire are still wide open, with Biden, Sanders, Warren, and Buttigieg forming a clear top tier. That's why we're so lucky again to have Jake with us. Uh, Jake, before we take a broader look at the primary, uh, why don't you start us by giving a sense of what's what's going on on the ground in New Hampshire? Um, You know, it was the, the, the surprising thing here has been, and particularly in our neck of the woods, um, we're in kind of the so-called Bernie's backyard corridor where in this county, Bernie, like two out of three votes in 2016. So it's been an interesting thing of like, where are those folks going to go? And for a while, it looked like Elizabeth Warren had just gamed this out so well. She had a great ground game. She built enthusiasm all summer. There were the plans. And then, you know, I don't think it's a policy. It wasn't a policy thing. I, I think that it was just the way that she, that her supporters felt when she got the critiques for the healthcare plan, they felt uneasy. And I think that a lot of this electability stuff with voters playing pundit, which you hear a ton at events, particularly the older they are, the more they say that, um, that, you know, you got to wonder, it's like, okay, the Democrats are, are mostly playing by the book here, you know, like no one's saying an opponent's father assassinated Kennedy at this point in the race yet. So like, it's overall like pretty, you know, pretty tame. So when she looks wobbly on the defensive, 
that's an issue. I also think that her campaign, they have a great data operation. They're very well run with organizing, but she has this insistence that she doesn't do polls or look at polls or make decisions on polls. That's like, well, maybe you should have, because this was totally, this was, you could have anticipated this. And frankly, because of gender, she is punished for things that Bernie gets away with when it comes to kind of answering for basic stuff on her policies. So Warren starts to falter. And then, yeah, Mayor Pete and like, you know, certainly September through like Thanksgiving was great for him. And he was drawing huge crowds here. He did well in our, with our editorial board. Um, our editorial board actually endorsed Klobuchar. Um, and she, I think what was interesting there was she really surprised um, both the crowd at her event that night. And I think she surprised our editors with how smart she was on the policy issues. When people, I think... Imagine her as the Midwestern gritty lady with the zingers. But that's not what she's like in person at all. I mean, she really does walk you through her thinking and very detail oriented, recalls a lot of facts and figures. So it's weird. I think you're going to hear a little more about um, some Kloshar, Buttigieg eating each other's lunch a little bit. And before that, it was, you know, Buttigieg was picking off those Warren supporters who are your well educated. They're more likely to be registered Democrats in New Hampshire, whereas Bernie's just had a lock on the more minimal information voters and the independents. Here's the last thing that I think people aren't ready for, and it's going to happen either way. I don't know how big it's going to be, but Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang have a thing on the ground here that's not getting covered a lot, but like it's – I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's a real thing. It's beyond hmm. – huh. Like, it's beyond what Ron Paul and a lot of these people who support them. I just did a feature on Tulsi Gabbard that was looking at her appeal to Trump supporters and independents. So a lot of them will mention the same three names. They'll mention Dennis Kucinich, Mike Gravel, and Ron Paul as people they liked in the past. And they see Tulsi as like the inheritor of that sort of brand of politics. But she's drawing a lot of other people that just don't pay attention to politics or they supported Trump and their independents. And they're only going to vote for her or nobody else. Same with Yang. The Yang people, and they're kind of more cordial about it, but like they're basically like, I'm voting for Yang in the primary. Unless he endorses someone, they have no interest in where this race would go from there. So it becomes a bit of a math issue where the vote's getting split so evenly anyway. And then you look at, you know, Bernie, where he really ran up the margins, was against independence against Hillary. He only beat her among registered Democrats by like one point. But among independents, there's a huge spread. I think that those, and I hate to, I don't mean this with a negative connotation, but the fringier elements of that support are really getting picked off by Yang and Gabbard. Mm. So I think that ultimately it's going to be this weird sort of like adjusting the abacus thing on election night where it's totally plausible that Bernie just gets enough into the 20s to win. It's totally plausible that I think, you know, Pete Buttigieg holds on to enough support. But the the, the Warren fading and the Gabbard and Yang um, fervent supporters makes it really, really hard to predict. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a test for Bernie, for sure. Yeah, I, the, I know that uh, um, the Gabbard, Tulsi's been going at, like her, I, you're not the first person I've heard that from, that she's intentionally targeting uh, well, not Demo- not Democrats, right? Independents and even Republicans to come yeah. over and and, yeah. and vote um, for for her. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Do you? What do you make of the the? I mean, I've got several questions, but um, what do you make of the fact that so Bernie did win New Hampshire? What do you? What was the margin last time for statewide? I think he got like in the sixties, and Hillary was in like the low forties. Okay. 
So he he won pretty handily, um, and and so I, there's there's the story that that is going nationwide about Bernie leading and how that's a a big deal. Um, there's another way to interpret it, which is that four years ago he had sixty percent of voters voting for him, and if he's got twenty percent now, there's a huge chunk of people who are on board with him who he's lost, which could actually be you know seen as a sign of yeah of weakness. And I don't really know. How, I mean, obviously it's different. There were two candidates then. There's a, a you know seventeen now. Um, but I, what do you what do you make of that? Do you see that as an issue for him? Do you see you know, that as I? It's a great question because I think. Ultimately, like this whole debate, like can Bernie win the general or not? It's like it's up to him. Frankly, it's like you know, is will there be another health issue? Is a huge question mark. The guy just had a heart attack. He had a heart attack two weeks after I talked to him for the first time. Like that's you know not forgotten. There's footage of him that will be used by Republicans of him standing with Soviet Union folks, with people in Nicaragua, and it just like. It's so much easier to just shoot that out as memes and then shortcut ads than it is for these Democrat high-minded attacks. They don't want to alienate his supporters. So a lot of it's in Bernie's hands for how he anticipates those attacks. But for the New Hampshire margins, I mean, I think that the – you look at all the crosstabs of the polling and the the trend has been generally true that the more people pay attention to the race, the more likely they are to support a Klobuchar – or a Buttigieg or a Warren. The less they pay attention, but they still say they support somebody, the more likely they are to go Bernie or Biden. And, you know, Sanders does have the nice crossover appeal of, excuse me, college degree, non-college degree, young, old. Um, And he has a coalition, obviously, of voters of color that's very appealing and, uh, frankly, is starting to have a feedback loop. Like, you're seeing a lot of people ask Buttigieg questions at events, well, why aren't you doing better in the black community? And because they're they're high-information voters who want to game this out. But as for whether Bernie, like, runs up the score or not, I mean, when I came here last year, it's funny, the scenario hasn't moved necessarily, where I thought the most likely scenario, based on everyone I talked to, was that the more the vote gets split, the better it is for Bernie because he holds on to his ride or dies and that's just enough for him to get out here. And then they drop out and he, he tries to roll from there. Has has Biden been uh, spending any time in New Hampshire or is he – because you don't really hear his name. Is, yeah. is he more recently been pushing a little bit? Yeah, yeah. He has a lot of surrogates come. The one thing about Biden's events, um, if you do like a heat map on it, he often does a couple quick ones near the Manchester area where there are a lot of voters. His – his events are never they're, they're never packed, but they're never like it's not like no one should. It's not the same problem Hillary had, where like mm-hmm. no one showed up sometimes. Mm-hmm. But they're also just very different, you know. They're quasi spiritual experiences for people. So like when you see the rope line at a Biden event, he'll like tilt his head forward and look look at someone in the eyes, and they they haven't said anything to each other yet, and the other per- person, if they're older especially, will just burst out crying. Phil, and you're like, what? Phil does and that. Then, does that? And that with happens me. like that happens like thirty <laughs> times in a row. That happens like thirty times in a row. And I'll grab them after the rope line and ask them like how they feel, and they they can't put a sentence together because they're like, I just lost my husband, or I just you know, like it's almost like what I imagine people who were like you know saints or relics or like soothsayers were <laughs> interpreted to be back in the day. Because he has a he has a real natural ability to get emotion out of people, and it's like a cathartic experience for people to be like, I met Biden. He's got my back. So there's that whole preseason relationship. People at the events love that stuff. And they also will say to reporters, we're banking on the people who don't go to all the events. Our people, they're working, you know, like they they know, they, they have their mind made up about Trump and we're, we're the safe bet. Don't worry about it. Now, that being said, 
it's like surrogate fest around here with the impeachment stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's just kind of a little weird. And frankly, you know, Sanders, Warren, and Buttigieg actually have legitimately sophisticated organizing apparatuses around here. And Biden doesn't. And I, I, I do wonder that, you know, um, that's where you juice up your like the, your margins of maybe three to five points from where you are in the polls. So I, I would say if, if you're reading the tea leaves, wherever Biden is in the New Hampshire polls and like the real clear politics average, I'd say it's probably what he's going to get. Mm-hmm. Other campaigns may be able to bump that up a little more. But, yeah, it's, it's just kind of your like grilled cheese sandwich of uh, New Hampshire campaigning. There's not much more to it than that. So I've I, I've been here. I, you know, I arrived in New Hampshire just in time for the last primary, and, and so this is my first like full yeah. go around go around with it. But people talk about like that the ground game makes all the difference, and and that I mean your experience is, and and the people who come around to the doors right yeah. are, are uh, I see it's it's Warren, it's Buttigieg. I mean those are the those are the big ones, and then you see you know again Tulsi and, and Yang right yeah. Um, and so I, I wonder like do you do. You, how how much if if you're if you're you know betting or predicting how much weight do you put on that? I do think that you know the whole point of the organizers and these cards they have people sign is they basically they bug you like crazy the week before and they're like, look, this is what you said to us back then. As long as they give you like a time capsule <laughs> and they're like, this is where we're at. Like we've established this rapport. No one else cares about you the way we care about you. What are you gonna do? It's like, oh my god, <laughs> I don't know about that. But you know that's kind of what the the end the end push is and. The, the fact is, like, Warren and Buttigieg have just covered so much turf. The Booker campaign was great at this, but they ultimately didn't have enough money to keep the bodies growing. Um, I just have this inkling that, you know, ultimately people get in the ballot box and they're like, let's be real. What my conservative uncle in, you know, like Muscatine, who could he swallow of all these people? And a lot of them will say, well, Tulsi's the only one who can win. <laughs> but like for the most part, they're going to say, nah, it's Biden. They have the pre-existing relationship. They know he's steady. And it's kind of the metaphor of like, you know, let's put out the fire before we get the Warren and the Sanders people talking about what the code enforcement changes should be <laughs> right. that got us here in the first place, you know? So like I think ultimately there could be just a late-breaking swing where if Biden doesn't mess up and he's steady, he could end up overperforming because the expectations have been set for him low here. So I just wonder how much of it psychologically is like, no matter all the interactions they've had with these other campaigns, they just are so worried about Trump, they play it safe. So uh, along those lines, I mean, campaigns have been putting in, uh, you know, a year and a half of work here. And, and then yeah. there's, there's, uh, there's, some, there's a fair amount of evidence that there's a huge number of people who are still undecided two weeks out. And so yeah. uh, how much impact or what's your sense of how much of an impact uh, what happens Monday night in Iowa, how much will that impact people a week later here in New Hampshire? It's going to be all the news. Right? I think it's going to be huge because, and it's, it's, we're not really going to know. It's just going to, it's going to, it's just going to shuffle things. It's not that like we're going to do the opposite or we're going to follow Iowa's suit. It's more that um, there's going to be a surprise. I think for example, a strong Klobuchar finish, mm-hmm. people will be like, well, okay, well, I, I kind of ruled her out for a while. And you know, frankly, like I do worry for Pete because he just had so many of those news cycles where it's like he's cleaning up in Iowa and the, every, all the reporting I've seen on the ground there, he's still packing his events. Mm-hmm. He's doing way better on the ground there than anybody. But the expectations, 
you know, recently maybe the 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 kind of struggles he's having are tamping that down. But I do think that um, whoever just comes out of there looking the shiniest, mm-hmm. and you know, again, there are the metrics of like there there are three different all the campaigns are going to spin the three different measurements that come out that night. So overall, these it's going to shake the snow globe we have here. And um, really, it just comes down to, like, how much the, frankly, the ones who can benefit the most are going to be Warren and Buttigieg, who have the bodies to go door to door and say, hey, you see what happened there? Like, we're making it happen here. Why don't you be a part of it? Mm -hmm. Whereas Biden and Sanders have to rely on the kind of meta, you know, narrative to be in their favor. It's, you know, the Midwest being in Chicago, it's slightly different. I don't know if you've noticed this, Nick, but but in conversations I've been having with people over the last few weeks about the Democratic primary. You and I talked to very different people. Well, that's right. This would be interesting, right? <laughs> I'm seeing more and more, even some some liberals who are drifting towards Biden. Like It just feels mm-hmm. like the the anxiety and the uncertainty about all of this. Like yeah, It just awesome. seems to be there is this, we got to go Biden. You know, the biggest issue now is defeating Trump. And I'm seeing more and more of that. People who initially were very interested in Elizabeth Warren, Bernie people, Pete, you know, the Pete people were all also now saying, well, you know, I, I really think Biden, it feels like there's been that shift, at least in, in the group that I'm hanging out with. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I, I think that, which realistically, it's 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 a sad state of affairs, mm-hmm. I, I guess, um, just in the sense that realistically, the I, I, I mean, like, uh, you know, what you were talking about, Jay, he's he's gotten away with a lot that Elizabeth Warren just couldn't get away with, which seems yeah. bizarre to me because mm-hmm. um, she seems again, I don't agree with just about anything that she says, but she's pretty detailed in terms of policy. Um, she's very approachable. Yeah. She seems like a good candidate. And Bernie's just this curmudgeonly piece of shit who hasn't explained anything. Um, <laughs> she's she's kind. That's why, that's why it works. Yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. it works though, because it's simple. It's like we're going after the millionaires and the billionaires, free college, you know, Green New Deal. It signals to wherever you want. However, the schism I would point out is the Joe Rogan endorsement. I'm not sure. Mm, yes, you guys yes, the yes. Your audience knows about yeah. it. But so Joe Rogan podcast, you know, mega superstar has all sorts of famous people on his show. It basically three categories. He has celebrities, fighters, and comedians. <laughs> and not everyone tunes in for all of them. He has a pretty you know huge audience. But a lot of people he's brought on have been like you know alt right controversial people. He doesn't know a lot about a lot of issues, so he's a great interlocutor. He's like, well, what does that really mean? Oh, okay, I guess I'll listen to that. So he's been accused of enabling you know white supremacists and nationalists, you know, all sorts of dirty figures but what i find interesting about the endorsement which was really he just kind of said on the podcast like yeah probably over bernie but bernie's campaign decided bingo we're gonna blast out a video of this and like we have this huge platform backing us and it's it's good in the in the short-term sense of like okay great low information voters hugely influential trusted figure in their earbuds every day but then here's where the schism is is kind of brought into relief the young Bernie supporters, like people I went to college with, they're convinced he's the most woke, you know, purified, actually genuine left candidate. The older supporters think the opposite. They think he's the least engaged in identity politics. Like, have you ever heard Bernie say, like, trans women of color or something like that? I don't, no. I don't recall that. You no. know? He's not asking what your gender pronouns are. He's not, like, engaged in any of this stuff. But, like, Warren, other candidates, you know, Kirsten Gillibrand would bring up white privilege at the events. It's the lingo. And Bernie's able to play it both ways because he has AOC stumbling for him on the trail. He's got Killer Mike vouching for him on racial equality. And, you know, 
suddenly when it comes down to him, we asked him this at the editorial board. He got very uncomfortable with it. We're like, look, like flat out, dude, do you think that is it just class that unites people and that's the fundamental struggle? Or do you see like isolated identity characteristics that someone will face discrimination for no matter how wealthy they are? And he just kind of, you know, he went back into his whole spiel. Um so, you know, I think that that's just something that he's, by virtue of not having a lot of scrutiny, been able to have his cake and eat it too. And, you know, you might start to see, like, frankly, there are already generational tensions where the older Bernie supporters and the younger ones, they don't get along that well because they're not actually compatible. The Joe Rogan endorsement was really fascinating to me because it was, you know, Bernie embraced it really quickly, as you noted. But yeah. the rest of the Democratic Party is is not sure what to make of this. Oh, the best part is just the eating each other aspect yeah. of it, too. So immediately after that, too, you have elements not necessarily. Well, yeah, probably better are more interested in other candidates immediately jump on the fact that. Joe Rogan has said the N word multiple times on his podcast to just try and denigrate him as this vessel that is supposed to be a supporter of Bernie of, of Bernie. And you you kind of see this repeating over and over again with different candidates in different aspects. And I, I'm not sure that's a really effective strategy to get anyone to get any sort of significant majority to really take on. Right. going for well it's it speaks to this divide that jake's talking about within the democratic party right it there, there's been a lot written this week to say that democrats would be stupid to ignore the you know the joe rogan contingency like that those are a lot of voters right. yeah. who mm -hmm. could vote left uh and you shouldn't run away from them that's sort of an elitist view mm -hmm. but it also is really really difficult for democrats and, and bernie and others to kind of find that balance between the how do you bring them in to the big tent party i i, I that I, I was i was kind of surprised that the the campaign bernie campaign and that and was yeah. was shooting that out have have any other campaigns hit him on that i know i've heard people within you know, no, most, most mostly through surrogates and yeah. back doors i mean they, they don't want because frankly one of the one of the funny things is like a lot of the campaigns have reached out to joe rogan to do the podcast and he only accepted tulsi and bernie mm -hmm. so there's a trap that's been laid right there but you know to, to your point i mean like I really don't like the reductive, like, is Bernie going to be a, like a McGovern and a horrible nominee or is he going to be this movement like the only one that can be Trump? It's like, ah, you know, there's a lot of it that's like it depends on how he behaves. And the, look at the midterms. The candidates that were like the Bernie-backed insurgents who actually won their primaries and went on to challenge these districts got shellacked. They got their asses handed to them because they ran on the Green New Deal and they ran on these – you know, frankly, it's 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 not even the policies; it's the tone. They ran on the kind of new leftist lingo that works really well on college campuses if you know you're on the coasts and don't play in the rest of the country. And like, frankly, what's interesting about the Joe Rogan thing is like a lot of Americans, like your suburban women, they will go pretty far with you on the economic stuff. Medicare for all obviously is a, is a bit of a, a buzz and a third rail, but they'll go, they'll go with you on taxing the wealthy and all this stuff. But once you start getting into the cultural stuff, you know, it's just, and it's just because we're, we're figuring this out. And frankly, a lot of the social justice terminology is being experimented with on college kids on campuses. Like we don't know what we're doing, mm -hmm. you know? And like, Anytime that these new, you know, buzzwords come in, even though you could argue they're just an extension of the civil rights struggle this nation's always been doing, they're not 
nailing it with people yet. And that's why you've seen the presidential campaigns overall avoid any kind of like niche, you know, social justice issue where they know that it just alienates a lot of voters. And those suburban women that you need to, you know, beat Trump, again, remember, college educated women were white, went for Trump by a majority in 2016, you know, playing to those folks, you need to downplay the like feel bad, you know, sort of like account for your white privilege thing. As important of a conversation as it is, it just starts to get messy. And that's what you're seeing with the Rogan thing is even though the backlash might be a tiny loud contingency of voters, suddenly once you engage with that dialogue, people just feel uncomfortable be having any part of it at all. And it just all kind of falls apart. You know, I was thinking about, you know, it's almost going to be a state by state thing. So the New York Times did a thing on Pennsylvania and they were talking about fracking and the issue of fracking and and, and looking at the divide between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie versus somebody like uh, Biden. You know, so uh, both uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie have come out against fracking uh, and Biden hasn't. Uh, And they were they were talking to people in Pennsylvania, the rural communities, liberal, I mean, yeah, liberal, Democratic, blue collar voters who said, you know, we will absolutely vote for the Democrat unless they are against fracking, Uh, in which case we can't stand Trump, but we will vote for him. I mean, it's it's really kind of an interesting thing to see that how far that left, whether that's it's going to be alienating or not. But, uh, you you know, the Democrats can't afford to lose Pennsylvania. They can't afford to lose Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And so some of these issues, the the issues that Bernie and, and, and Warren are pushing. I'm, I'm just curious to see how that all, all shakes out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I just think the, the thing of Bernie, you ha- he's always faced opposition from Democrats who either say, you know, more often than that, honestly, it's like Bernie actually isn't as woke as you think. Like a lot of the Hillary attacks and the stuff you see from Biden is like, well, look at his record on guns. Look at his record on immigration. He was talking, you know, he was sounding like, you know, kind of a fringy, uh, Republican on these issues, right. you you see him sometimes attacked from the you know from the other flank, saying like, "Whoa, we got to slow our roll here." As fellow Democrats, we need to keep it in check. What you never see with Bernie, and what he's never seen personally in Vermont, is a full fledged RNC backed like you're a scary communist and you're gonna like kill us all. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's no there's no line they're not willing to cross. I mean, 40% of the American public thought the Pope endorsed Donald Trump in 2016. <laughs> so it's like That's and then bad. Hillary was running an airtight batten down the hatch, obviously with baggage of conspiracy theories, but like I just think Bernie needs to and if he handles it well, he could win, but I just have never seen how he can handle the like the full-blown, you know, yeah. Fox News all that churning against him. I don't know. There's been a there's been a bunch of polling recently looking at the degree to which the American public can distinguish between socialism and Bernie's democratic socialism, and the answer <laughs> yeah. is not at all, yes, right? I mean, they right. have no clue. Right. And, and you're right. If, if a Republican apparatus is able to hammer at Bernie on that, they they will it will be ruthless. It and, has socialism in the title. Right. What is what? Why are we talking right. about? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, we, we can't even distinguish between socialism and communism as a country. Yeah, and that's like the whole problem. Mm-hmm. You know, like and it's a uh, it's funny. There's a, there's a podcast. I mean, I, I speak French, so. I to it. It's called Letters to uh, Letters from America 
from Philippe Corbet at um, the RTL France Network. And we're really not sure if you guys have seen Tim Alberta at Politico's doing this Letters to Washington series. They have a weird crossover, whereas we had an episode where he was trying to explain to a French audience why socialism was such, such a toxic term in American politics, because he was like, look, like for you guys, socialism is, is Francois Hollande, like bo- boring boilerplate center-left stuff. Here, he was saying, like, they think of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and Cuba and Venezuela, and it was really interesting hearing him unpack that for that audience and then hear someone like alberta tell people in dc like you don't understand how even a little bit of movement from democrats on issues like guns or like fracking can alienate wide swaths of people without much movement necessary Mm -hmm. and it's it's interesting just to hear that kind of explained to that highly dialed in audience to like smack them across the head like no 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 like just look a little bit you know wider here yeah Mm. Very interesting. That's good. So uh, before we, I I know we're running out of time, but um, I'm kind of curious. We talked a little bit about who's doing well and who has ground games and and all of that. So if, you know, three weeks from now, four weeks from now, you'll be off, you know, uh, reporting somewhere else in the world. (laughs) So um, what... Let's so four weeks from now. Will, will we have had South Carolina at that point too? Is that, I think that is first, then South Carolina. All right. So, yeah. um, what what uh, what's your prediction? What's the biggest surprise a month from now? Uh, is is there is there something? I that think you... I think just because again, I mean, I've just seen it. I've written about it a lot here, but I think just people because they haven't been paying attention to Tulsi and Yang. One or both of them, I think, is going to put up a number where people could be like, "What." like that high you know i mean i do think there's a chance that either tulsi or yang could finish in the top five above people that we think of as like you know locked in top tier candidates i think that could totally happen the other surprise i really do think that um you know frankly for a lot of people who have been paying attention the fact that like bernie is just sort of a little bit teflon and is able to kind of like never really get knocked off um the long shot one and this is just if, if you really believe that the race isn't as nationalized as all the evidence kind of points to it being, it could be that Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar, by virtue of just the old school working hard on the ground, is able to actually, you know, suddenly take that Biden mantle. That's mm-hmm. remote. That's like that's like the real long yeah, distance. They've both know. been hanging around. Pete's got a lot of money left. Klobuchar got I, I saw the union leader endorsed uh, her as well. Was, right? the, the, who, uh, I mean, the, 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 the father and son who own it uh, wrote an article oh, okay. to, get, to get clicks. Well, then never mind. Then. Never mind. Then I take that back. Yeah. So. But, uh, anyway, but it was endorsed. It, it, uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's um, I, I lately I've been hearing more. Klobuchar buzz than really about almost anyone else. People right here, were tuning around around here. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I went to one of her events recently, just real quick, like most people here had never seen her in person before. And, uh, you know, she's got a couple things going for her. She has a, a consistent cast member to impersonate her on SNL or a former cast member, but still she's in the, in that ballpark. And, you know, I think that TV is tough for her because it's condensed. But when you have the early state luxury of seeing someone in person, you know, she went to Chicago Law School at James Comey. I mean, she really does walk you through, like, here's what I believe, here's where I'm coming from, and here are reasons why I can tell you what you can reasonably expect from me and trust from me based on what I've done on Capitol Hill. She's like, not trying to ruin your dreams, you know, but people find that refreshing that she's like willing to be frank with you about what she thinks is like realistic in DC. Her, her event that I, the one that I, that she did in the classroom here, did it felt felt different. It felt, uh, it wasn't the, the, um, 
well, Warren Sanders, uh, Cory Booker, like the sort of, certainly, uh, you know, Beto when he was the sort of big production. Uh, but it wasn't the kind of, you know, boring, just it, it was a, it, it felt more policy. And the kids were expecting a sort of like glitz and glamour introduction. And it was like, no, nah, she wanted to like, just like kind of get down to some poli sci, like meat and potatoes. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, what? <laughs> I, I, I thought, I, wait, watching that, I thought that the students aren't going to react to this. No. And then afterwards talking to them, the number of them who who reacted in a really positive way, like really liked her was so- only. A few, only a few thought she was using canned material and sounded like a politician. It's like, yes, she sounds like a politician, but her, her case is that she's she a steady is. hand and she's a good one. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll be interested to see yeah. how she does uh, over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Do you think she'll be Definitely ahead? Definitely helping her veep stock for sure. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you think she'll be ahead or, or behind Hillary when she enters the race? I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> um... Any final thoughts on this, guys? This was great. Uh, and there was this one great one, one one thing actually I actually wanted to, to ask you, Jake. You, you were talking yeah. about uh, uh, Tulsi and and Yang. Um, like, what do you think their what does this say for the Democratic Party going forward? Are they going to realistically? They have a a, a very um, enthusiastic. I wouldn't say fanatical, but bordering on fanatical. Um, um, support structure behind them. Are they going to, you know, kind of toe the line at some point and kind of get behind a candidate or does this kind of pretend a, a greater kind of factionalization and, and splintering of the democratic party yeah. going forward with their really kind of structures? Yang, pretty confident he's going to endorse somebody and he's going to really do his darndest to convince his supporters. Like, look guys, like I know you, lo- you thought my message was special, but like, I've been telling you Trump's a threat. We need to like get serious. Tulsi, I don't know. Like, <laughs> talk to her. No, I don't because like on the one hand, I think the caricature of her is like Russian plant or like rogue. You see her in person, she's just very calm. And that's like the kind of the weird thing. Like, I asked her about Assad in the editorial board and I get her argument that like meeting with Assad is like a good thing for a leader, but then she categorically denies that he even used chemical weapons and that like she implies he got set up for it. Mm-hmm. So that she's in mm-hmm. a niche of conspiracy theories that it, it, it helps her appeal along that group. That's different from mm-hmm. Yang, who's who's simply bringing a refreshing futurist kind of trans demographic message to the race. Um, I, you know, to, I could do a whole like media studies seminar on this and I'll, I'll spare everyone. But I do think that what these candidates reveal and they, someone like AOC will be able to use down the road is millennials, a little bit of Gen X, but definitely millennials in your Gen Z cohorts. We have sort of because of technology, the way we consume everything by curation, it's no longer by appointment. It's all, you know, what we want and p- piecing together our tastes you know, there's no mash, there's no common cultural bases, no one watches the same shows. That's going to affect politics because I think that niche is going to become the thing that gets, especially if we're going to keep rewarding individual donors, niche is what gets you the legs to get your campaign going. Mm-hmm. And anything that sounds widely palatable, frankly, I think why a lot of millennials react negatively to Pete is he sounds like, you know, your Coca-Cola classic or like, you know, Wonder Bread sort of broadly appealing brand. And 
people get nauseated by that stuff all of a sudden just because that's how we, we that's how everything fits into our lives. So long term, I think people are going to really study these two candidates. I think to your question, you're going to see a diverge. I think Yang is going to be a team player. Tulsi could be, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's a lot to go through. Jay, yeah. thank, thank you again for coming on. This is, <laughs> yeah, this, this this is fun. Great. I, I love talking to you guys. So. Um, can, can you solve for me? For sure. Should we do some plugs? Yeah. <laughs> Buy merchandise from us. <laughs> yeah, please, please start with that yes. one. That can make us some money. Of course. Follow us on Facebook at Barstool Politics or uh, Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not on the Instagram yet, Nick. we got to get on the Instagram. Do we need to get on the I, Instagram? Everybody's, everybody tells me we got to get on Instagram. I think the kids call it the gram now. <laughs> That's what I hear. That's what all the Zoomers do. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have Facebook, uh, Twitter, uh, the podcast, um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Review us, share us, like us through there. Beers that we try, you will find on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, just look for Barstool Politics on there. Bill mentioned the merch line, uh, teespring.com, the direct link you will find on our social media channels. Um, so check that out. Um, anything else, guys? I think we're good. Awesome. Jake, Best, thanks again. Th- thank yeah, you, Jake. Thank you. Best yeah, luck. good luck. Good luck. Yeah. Stay in touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to. Great. Thanks, Cheers. guys. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks.